Today, we have Michael Episcope on the show. Do you want to invest in real estate but don't know where to start? Michael Episcope is co-CEO of Origin Investments in Chicago, founded in 2007. He and his partner started the company to invest their own capital into real estate. They then brought on friends and family and then continued to grow its investor base. Now the company manages over $1.4 billion in assets through various funds, including two QOZ or Qualified Opportunity Zone funds. Learn more about the tax savings opportunities of investing in QOZ funds in this episode. Before we jump into the intro, if you have interest in learning how to invest passively, check out my five-step process for passively investing in real estate. You can download it for free by going to darrenbatchelder.com backslash learn and then select the free PDF. Now, onto the intro. Welcome to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show. Each week, you will learn how to grow your wealth through real estate investing, be introduced to the players that are getting it done, and learn how you can get involved. And now, here's your host, Darren Batchelder. A little background on Michael Episcope before we start the show. Michael lives in Chicago with his wife and three boys. Prior to starting the company, he was a very successful commodities trader. He and his partner started to invest into real estate with their own capital. After seeing the dramatic wealth building opportunities, they started to help friends and family, and then they opened up their funds to third parties. They now manage over $1 billion in assets. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone. Today, we have a very special guest. We've got Michael Episcope with us. Michael, appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Darren. Absolutely. So just a little bit on how, how we know each other. So this is actually the first time that, that Michael and I will, will get a chance to speak. Um, somebody reached out on Michael's behalf um, to see about getting on the show. And, you know, just quite frankly, most times I don't do that um, unless I know the person or the person has been given to me as a referral. Um, but I did review the, the background and I was like floored at the, the scope of experience that these guys have. So I'm very interested to hear more and I uh, hope that you guys will learn a lot out of this. So uh, with that, first question I typically ask is how many properties and how many units are you guys currently invested in? So we have roughly, um, I mean, it's constantly changing because we're both buying and selling in today's market, somewhere between uh, 40 and 45 total properties. Uh, and generally we're in Sunbelt states south of the Sunbelt, and we're close to kind of 9,000 units tracking towards 10,000 units. And those are both uh, portfolio of properties that are, are stabilized in some stage of value add or being built under control, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, th th this is amazing guys. These guys have transacted over 2 billion, like 2.3 billion, if I have it right, um, in total deals. And in terms of, you know, ranking, they are in the top 1% for North American real estate fund managers. So these guys have a ton of experience. How did you even get into the space? What were you doing before? And how did you even get into the space? I and was when? a commodities trader. Yeah, it's a great question. It's sort of the, the why and how we began. But um, going back, this is my second career. I made my wealth um, here in Chicago. I was born and, and raised here. And I went down to the uh, Chicago Mercantile Exchange at the young age of 19. And that was sort of the start of my first career. And to me today, I, I can't even believe it. I have a 19 year old and to think that he, he, you know, I was starting my first career at that age was kind of crazy to think about, but I sort of stumbled upon it and I loved it. And I ended up, um, I was at DePaul university. I pushed all my classes tonight. I burned the candle at both ends to make it work. I loved it. I was studying finance and econ and also just seeing how the financial world worked by working there during the day. And ultimately I ended up uh, becoming a trader, um, trying my hand at that. I was pretty good at it. 
And for the next um, nine years, again, I just worked um, bell to bell, saved as much as I could. And then uh, my life changed uh, on a few areas. Number one, when I started um, trading, I, I didn't have any money, right? And then when I was done, I had uh, accumulated quite a bit of wealth. I was also in the beginning, before I was trading, I was single. Um, then I was married and then I had two kids and one on the way. And I was sort of like looking at it and, and my risk profile had just changed. And so I, I kind of said, what's next? And, and I'm a little bit of a, a restless soul. I don't like to do anything for you know too long and I needed a, a new uh, challenge. And real estate was something that I was introduced to as a young kid. Um, my grandfather was in real estate. I used to go help him in the summers. I kind of saw the way that the, the income and just the, the wealth that it created for him. And I was always enamored by it. So I took that opportunity, um, punching out of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, sort of moving into the next phase of my life, went back, got a master's of real estate at DePaul. And my partner and I were, um, you know, we had already been working together on, on various things. We worked, we were friends. Um, we really saw the world in a very similar light. He was doing some development projects out on the East Coast. We had gotten together and just decided that we wanted to build a firm together and manage our own money. So in the beginning, it was more like a family office. And then what happened was uh, we, it just sort of evolved and we brought in friends and families. We were finding interesting deals and that was in 07, 08. So, you know, in a lot of ways, it was a great time to be starting a firm. Now, if I knew what I knew today back then, you know, would have fast tracked, but we've been in this for 14 years and I would say we started hitting our stride about three or four years ago. But it was really like like that notion of alignment, us investing in our deals, us sitting at the table as investment managers, hiring the team, looking at this from a different perspective. And I, I think in many ways, not being from the real estate or having that 20 year you know, pedigree and being you know, kind of saddled and, and thinking about how to grow a firm benefited us. And we really, you know, we pride ourselves on thinking differently, doing things differently. And then it was just about building a firm for people like ourselves, for individuals, um, family offices, for um, the clients of wealth managers. And so, you know, what really motivates me and gets me up, you know, every day is helping people like me uh, generate, really grow, protect, generate passive income, you know, in real estate and getting the benefits of passive real estate. It doesn't really interest me that much to be working for, you know, a pension fund or an endowment or anything like that. Because people like us, we, we work hard, we've saved our money. Um, and historically, you know, when you go back to 06, 07, 08, the market was very different. And there weren't a lot of, you know, great opportunities out there for individual investors. So we've always had this notion of we wanted to build an institutional real estate platform for the individual investor. And I, we made a lot of great decisions. And, and that's really like fund one, fund two, fund three, you know, those ended up, um, you know, top ranked funds. And then Prequent most recently, you know, to your point, ranked us as um, a top decile manager, we say. We're actually in, in the top 2% of national rankings of more than 2,000 investment managers. So we're very, um, you know, just proud of what we've, uh, what we've done, you know, our track record, our team, and, and just the way we do business. So it, it's something that we think about, you know, not only the past, but how do we continue to deliver that same value today and in the future, especially as we scale and we grow. That, that's a fantastic story. So, you know, first of all, you know, you, you partnered with somebody that you, you were friends with. Were, did you guys uh, work in the commodity space together or... Uh, was was it a college buddy or how did, how no, did you guys no, get actually we just met through mutual friends and I'll never forget meeting okay. him we were just like kindred spirits and and we had a lot in common and we um, we didn't know each other in college we had very similar backgrounds he was in the commodity space he left much earlier than I did he left around 2000 um, to start a nonprofit to do some development on that side and I always say, like, there's two people in my life that I'm very fortunate to have met, my wife and my partner, you know, and, and you don't find mm. people who you cross paths with too often that you really um, are in sync with. So I'm very blessed to have him as his partner. He's incredibly smart. Um, and it's been a great kind of 14 years together. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. And you, and you said some you said two things. One, that you saw the world in a similar light. And you also said that you're kindred spirits. And, you know, I've had other syndicators on, on the, you know, the show that, 
have talked about, yeah, you know, you have to have complementary skill sets and, you know, focus and typically focus in different areas and, and grow with your partners. But you also have to have the same kind of ethical standards. You have to have to be aligned with that person because you are going to be working with them for a long time. And if, if you look at the world differently, then you, you might have a lot of friction. So that's, that's fantastic. And it's very consistent with what I've heard from others. Yeah. And Darren, I'll say that, um, it's so much more important for your core values to align than your skill set to be complementary to one another. Because if you don't view the same the world through the same lens, the the integrity, the ethics, and and I would say, you know, it's not about approving deals or what he does. Skills can be learned, right? And and you can augment sure. those and do different things. And certainly there there have been some growing pains along the way, and some you know stepping on toes of each other. But the way we've we've managed the firm is that David really covers the real estate side of the business. He manages the investor um, investment management side and then the acquisitions team. And I manage the investor relations side, the capital raising, the marketing and then uh, corporate services. And we come together on, on deal committee, both approving deals, because this is a lot of our own capital in, in these um, opportunities. And we also, you know, we bring different perspectives to the table. So it's, um, you know, having a partnership can be great when it works. And it can be, I, I know from others too, it can be, um, it can be really tough. So, but you got to get the core values right. And, and that's really where we see eye to eye on. And it's not like we don't, you know, fight. We do, but we, we have a mutual respect <laughs> for one another. You right. know, when, when we disagree, we disagree respectfully. And we walk out of the room, you know, looking at each other's opinion and say, okay, I can see that, or I can see that. And then there's times, you know, you, you know, there are swords you want to die on. And I'll tell you, like, when he comes to me and he wants to die on a sword, I'm like, okay, this obviously means a lot to him, right? I don't have a monopoly on the right answers. And I know that, and he knows that as well. So it's, um, it's been a great push and pull over all these years. That's great. And what's also different about you guys uh, from, from a lot of the syndicators I've talked to is, is, you know, when you went to scale, it was kind of a natural order where a lot of the syndicators that I've talked to you know, they saw the opportunity to be able to buy bigger properties. They didn't have the capital to do so. So they went and started to syndicate and uh, leverage other people's money so that they can buy bigger properties. But it sounds like, you know, for your story, that the two of you guys came together, hey, let's just protect and grow our wealth. And then you had people naturally just saying, hey, what are you guys doing? Are you, are you successful? You know, Hey, can you do some of that for me? And then yeah. first it started with friends and family and then you grew from there. Yeah. And I'll, I'll say that when we went to outside capital, it wasn't about doing um, really bigger deals. Um, I, I hear people say that, well, what do you want to do? I want to do really big deals. I mean, check your ego, right? It doesn't matter. I want to make money. I want to make money for me, our investors. I don't care if a deal's pretty or ugly or big or small. Um, but it, it was really about looking at our business and saying, listen, if we want to really hire and attract a team, right, the team who we want to help find the best deals out there, manage the deals, um, you, you know, there's a lot of infrastructure that's involved. And I think we, we learned early on that if we're going to do this, we really need to amortize um, all these costs over larger pools of capital, right, because these are the people who we want to hire. And, and that's what it was about more than anything. And I would say in the beginning, because... David and I um, had wealth. Our investors were paying much better fees than we were. But we also knew that we were building balance sheet value and we were building a company. So I like to say, you know, in fund one, David and I were paying 5% annual fees and everybody else was paying 1.5%, right? In fund two, because as we were getting, you know, money, um, you know, it was sort of like our investors were paying 1.5% and we were paying four, right? And, and, and that's, but we knew that, you know, there was no better place for us to be investing our money. And, and we were building a company out of this. And it takes a long time to scale in what I'll call the retail world, focusing on individual investors. And so few have been able to do that. And that's really why people start with high net worth. And then they, uh, what I'll call graduate or what they see in their world is graduating into the pension funds because they want the 20, 30, 40, $50 million checks. And you can count on, you know, one hand, the number of groups who have really successfully scaled with the individual investor only. 
And and that's what you guys focus on, individual investors only? You, yeah, that's it. The taxable investor. And, and it's really, you know, I, I did a webinar last week and I was talking about the tax efficiency of real estate investment. And, and it's, it's nice to have a homogenous group of taxable investors, right? So whether you're talking about a high net worth, ultra high net worth, the client of the RAA, family offices, et cetera, we're all in the same bucket. Now, when we think about how we structure funds, how we manage real estate, how we our, our just strategy, you know, buy, fix, sell was our old strategy. Now it's more buy, fix, hold, looking at those tax advantages. Well, if we had a hybrid structure and we had pension funds who, who were um, also in the mix and we had endowments and we had non-taxable investors, well, they really shape your strategy much differently. And we've partnered with them in the past. They don't care about taxes, right? But I do and all of our other investors do as well. And, and it sort of creates this friction between the two groups. And ultimately, the the, um, the entity or the individual who comes with the $30 million check is going to make the rules, right? And everybody else is going right. to have to follow along. So I, sure. I love the fact that we are, we are focused, our group is homogenous, and we're helping people like us. Yeah, that's huge. So talk a little bit about, um, you know, I think you have what, three or four different funds? So talk about the different funds, talk about what type of assets you put into each of the funds, uh, you know, what, what kind of what's the pros and cons of one over the other. And, um, you know, I know this is going to get long, but, you know, a lot of syndicators are not set up to do funds. They are transactional. They, they get a deal under contract. They raise the capital for that deal. And then they're on to the next one and they do everything the same thing. So it seems like, okay, you started the company in 2007, maybe like 2011, 12, when you started doing funds. 2011 was our first fund. Yeah. And Darren, I'll be, um, you know, a lot of individual investors, they like deals and and we do both, right? We do deals and and we do funds, but we didn't start. Oh, you do, you do both. Well, we do, we do co-investments on sidecars, right? And I'll, I'll get into that in a second. Um, but when we started um, the fund business, it wasn't necessarily saying that, hey, this is better for us. We want to do funds. And I think a lot of people have this misconception that funds are better for the manager. What it gives us and the advantage it gives us is permanent capital, right? The ability to tap in and go to the table when we're competing to a deal and say, yes, we can close. We have the money, not hey, hold on, we can close, but we got to cobble it together, right? Or we have a track right. record of that. So. There's actually an advantage to individual investors when it comes to investing in the fund because all of the promotes, right, the performance fees in a fund, if we have 20 deals in there, all those performance fees are cross-collateralized. So if 10 deals do well and 10 deals don't do well and we return a nominal return, we don't get paid a performance fee. If you if you look at those 20 deals and you're building a portfolio through syndications, if 10 of the deals do well and 10 don't do well, well, guess what? You're paying performance fees on those 10 deals that do well. So there, there's an inherent distinct advantage of investing through a fund. And what we've always said is that we create products that we want to invest in. And then we do. Right. Our money is side by side with investors. But I'll I'll get back to your question. Um, we have four funds and it really runs the gamut from lower risk, to higher risk, yield to growth. Um, and when we think about you know, like our strategy, it's only multifamily. We build, buy and lend. We've done many other categories in the past, but really it's about specialization. Multifamily happens to be one of the lower risk asset classes out there. We are in Sunbelt um, states and South. So we're in the Southeast, the Texas markets, Nashville and the Southwest. So cover quite a bit of territory. Uh, We have 35 people at origin. Um, in that strategy, when we think about build, buy, and lend, we also think about the, the um, consumer, right? What, what, are the, what do they want out of this? Well, you have on one end of the spectrum, you have people who only want yield, right? They want income. They want that, that passive tax-efficient income from real estate. And then on the other side, you have people who just want growth, right? They want to grow their capital. They don't care about income. Everybody has a different um, perspective. And then you have the middle who want a little bit of growth and in income or optionality. They want lower volatility. And so that's how we think about it. So our strategy, even though it's a three-tiered strategy of build, buy, and lend, right? Then what happens with those is we put them into different funds and produce a benefit to the investor. So I'll take you through the real estate funds because the credit fund is a little bit different. 
But when we think sure. about, um, you know, our, our, our two real estate funds, there's a third out there. I'll get into that as well. But we have the Income Plus Fund. And the Income Plus Fund is a multi-strategy fund that has those three strategies in it. 20% of that fund is dedicated towards ground-up development. The other 80% is to lending and sort of core plus. It provides tax efficiency through depreciation. It provides stability through the lending portion of it as well, and also yield. So that's um, about a 9 to 11% total return is what we're trying to generate, 6% yield, but with very minimal volatility, right? And, and the mixing, um, generally when you have something like preferred equity by itself, that's not a tax efficient investment. But when you pair it with common equity real estate that produces depreciation, that depreciation actually offsets, right? There the excess depreciation offsets the tax inefficiency. So then you can produce a, a very tax efficient yield in that fund with lower volatility. And the ground up development, there's a couple things. Number one, it generates alpha because that's the portion of the portfolio. But when we're looking at today's market, we're not really doing anything in the middle, which is buying real estate. Um, there's always exceptions to the rule, but in today's market, where we're looking at projects that are 10 to 15 years old that are trading, you know, 10, 15, 20% above replacement costs, we would much rather be building in those markets at a, at a lower basis today, right? We think that's a better risk adjusted return. So in a lot of these markets, like when we're looking at Phoenix, when we're looking at Nashville, when we're looking at Austin, you can't compete when you're looking at core plus and value add deals because there's a wall of capital. So we're actually out of that market. We're net sellers um, to those individuals. We're selling everything in fund three, everything in fund two. And we're just looking to enter into those markets by building. OK, so that that's um, that's our first fund. That's income plus. And then on the other spectrum is growth. And, and the growth fund that we're coming out with is going to launch on January 15th of 2022. That is going to be about 10 to 12 ground up developments that um, will be paired also with some GP elements. Right. So a general partner investment means that you give above market economics. But what it does for us is it also gives us a pipeline into future deals. So working with sponsors over and over and over and providing that, um, that development capital um, early on in the phase gives us a first look at all those opportunities. So it's a, um, you know, I was talking about tax efficiency. Now, the interesting thing about this fund is it's very short dated. It's a five year fund, but if investors want to stay in, they can't. So it's what we call a build to core. You're taking that development risk and then you can stay in year after year after year and you just let us know when you get out. And it's a mark to market fund because over the last you know, 10 years, one thing we've learned is that in order to grow wealth, you need to buy great properties and hold them for a long period of time and generate, you know, take advantage of the depreciation, the ability to refinance um, tax-free over and over and let the upside run. And we have deals that we've sold two, three, four years ago that are coming back to us now that are 40, 50% higher. And, and when you look at the most sophisticated investors out there, well, this is how they invest. And this is what we wanna to bring to the market as well. And more often than not, every time we sell a deal, we get comments from investors, hey, this is fantastic. What do I do with my money now? Where do, where's right. the next investment? How do I reinvest? Right, cool. Why do we sell this, right? Why couldn't we just get this eight or 9% yield? And so that's a page that we've taken out, out of the book. So rather than being on this hamster wheel of, you know, buy, fix and sell, pay your taxes, let your money sit around, take a lot of risk in another deal, you can actually make a lot more wealth in this strategy, just buying and holding forever. And that's true in real estate, it's true in stocks, it's true you know, across really every asset class. That's how real wealth, and you always meet these people who've owned a piece of property for 30, 40 years, and their, their basis is $300,000, and now it's $8 million. You know? um, so we just don't wanna keep making you know, those same mistakes, and that's why we've really changed our strategy from buy, fix, sell to buy, fix, hold going forward. So those are our sort of what I'll call our two flagship funds. We also have a qualified opportunity zone fund. Um, that is, is we just came out with that, um, our second fund last week. The first fund was about $275 million, very tax advantage. We could take up this whole time talking about that. And then um, the lowest risk spectrum fund we have is called our multifamily credit fund. And that, that is only for qualified investors so or qualified purchasers. It's those people who have 
um, more than $5 million in investable assets. And candidly, it doesn't, even though the fund is secured by loans of multifamily real estate, it qualifies more as a security than real estate. So we think about, when you think about asset allocation, you've got real estate and you've got credit and the multifamily credit fund falls in the credit bucket, but it uses real estate to generate the yield in that, in that fund. Gotcha. Gotcha. Hey, um, maybe, I don't know if we'll spend the whole time on it or not, but I haven't really had many people on here talking about opportunity zones. So I think that that, um, if you could spend some time sharing, you know, what qualifies, you know, for a, a deal, um, in an opportunity zone, what are the benefits? What are, what are the you know downside, um, of doing that that sort of thing? Yeah, I'll try to give you the uh, abbreviated, maybe five to seven minute version here because we've literally there had webinars that have gone hours on this. So Qualified Opportunity Zone came out of the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And what it is, is it was a bipartisan measure to, um, the purpose was to, to take, um, to get um, money um, out of the hands of the wealthy, right? Incentivize the wealthy to actually invest in in neighborhoods, moderate to low income neighborhoods, right? And how did they do that? Well, they created this plan where they mapped out 8,700 qualified opportunity zones that are based on the 2010 census, right? And when this came out, there was a lot of skepticism about it. Um, number one, you know, what do these neighborhoods look like? Are they investable? Because what happens is if, if, a very, if a wealthy investor has capital gains from any source, it can be from real estate, it can be from stocks, it can be from bonds, whatever shows up on your K-1, if you invest that capital within 180 days into a qualified opportunity zone fund or property, you get three tax benefits. The first one is called, um, is, is really a reduction or it's called a step up in basis. So I'll use very round numbers here. If you have a million dollars in capital gains in 2021, and you invest in a qualified opportunity zone fund, that will be reduced when it comes time to pay taxes to $900,000. So there's a step up in basis, that's the first. Now that only lasts through the end of this year and then that disappears. So it's only if you invest in 2021. Oh, the end of 2021? Okay. Yes, for the step up in basis. The other thing I wanted to ask on, you know, a lot of people I'm sure you're aware have been taking advantage of bonus depreciation. Um, so, and then, but then when you sell, you've, you've got the recapture. If, mm -hmm. could you end up selling a property in 2021, have the recapture and then do an opportunity fund to, so that you don't have to pay back the, that recapture or they would, it would. That is a really good question. So, um, I, I don't know exactly about that particular nuance itself, right? So I, I think you're talking about somebody coming into a qualified opportunity zone fund if they have to pay the, the excess, um, depreciation, right? The recap. So, so the general recapture is no, right? Just like you wouldn't have to pay it. I think if you went into a, a 1031 exchange, but I'm not sure about the excess depreciation on that, but let me, so, so the other, there's two more benefits and I'll get to, um, you don't have to recognize the taxable gain until 2026. So this is like an interest-free loan for the next five or six years, and that is only payable in 2027. Now, the risk is, is that if you're paying at today's tax rates and you have a capital gain, you're gonna be paying right around 24%, 20% plus the net investment income tax. Um, if in 2026, the tax rates on capital gains are 30%, you might be paying, you'll be paying 30%, right? So that is the risk, but it's somewhat offset by the step up in basis. But all that aside, the best, um, the best benefit of this program is the fact that if you are in the, if you are invested for more than 10 years in a day, there is, um, there is no tax on your gain. So if that $1 million grows to $2 million, $3 million, $4 million, and you take it out at 10 years and six months, right? You pay zero taxes. So there is really like, Darren, when I when I talk to people about this, I'm like, look, if you like real estate and you have capital gains, there is no better place to invest than QOZ right now, because the after tax wealth that you create through a QOZ fund versus the math on, on using after tax um, capital to invest the same way is about 75 percent greater. It, it's not even close. Right. Wow. So. It's, it's an amazing gift to investors. Um, you know, and I, I think some of the misconceptions are from what I said earlier. Well, 
I don't want to invest in these, you know, low income, moderate income neighborhoods, right? Well, there's neither do we. You can't make money in those, right? And we don't look at QOZ any differently than we do um, our other funds, our investing strategy. And the way we got into this, um, you know, back in 2018 was doing a lot of research and looking at the markets and kind of where the QOZ areas are, because we approach everything skeptical as well. And our job is to sort of look for the icebergs and the holes and, you know, where are we going to lose money? And what we found is that a lot of the deals that we were already looking at in fund three and actually owned um, were in qualified opportunity zone areas. These were transitioning neighborhoods. And when you think about how much cities have changed between 2010 and today, it's mind boggling, right? It's staggering. If you went to Denver, if you went to Nashville, if you went to Austin, any of these cities 10 years ago, and those census tracts were based on the city back then. So I'll give you an example, like in, in Nashville, we have one of the best development sites right now tied up, not QOZ development sites, but best development sites in the country tied up. It just so happens that it's in a QOZ area. We're working through entitlements. We've gotten, um, you know, we're, we're working with the city right now to get this um, through zoning, but it's it's a phenomenal project. And we don't, you know, historically, when we're looking at qualified opportunity zone projects, we're not competing against QOZ funds. We're competing against the pension funds and the endowments out there in institutional capital. They don't care about the qualified opportunity zone benefits. It's just good real estate. So I, I would, you know, candidly say that 95% of the qualified opportunity zone areas you can't make money and they're not worth investing. And so we're really fishing around the edges, looking at those 5%. But because we've been in this for three years now, sure. um, our pipeline is incredibly deep. That's huge. Now, is there some education component to the individual investors that, you know, some people get, they get, even though that, you know, you talk about the, the real wealth is, you know, hold, buy and hold forever. There's a lot of investors that still like that, man, I doubled my money in three years, you know? And, mm -hmm. and so, you know, some of those people, is there an education component to, to them to get them to say, Hey, take a piece and lock it down for 10 or 10 or more years? Yeah, I, I, there is to a degree. I mean, you have people um, who have all kinds of different um, time horizons. And, and I've had, you know, one of, uh, you know, an investor said to me, Michael, I'm not even buying green bananas right now. So I'm not even looking at this. So um, but yeah, there, there is. And what I always tell people is, look, oh, you might be wrong over the next two or three years. But what you will be right is over the next 10 years and multifamily right. real estate, institutional quality real estate, the stuff we're doing, 40, 50, 70 million dollar projects has never lost money over any 10 year period. So for me, I love the fact that we don't have to, you know, like constantly talk about the timing of the sale, this or that, because even if we go back to the worst period, right, in, in 07, if you would have bought at the high in 07, right, five years later, right, so let's say the, the QOZ Opportunity Zone came in in 07, and you were like panicking and you wanted to get out in, in 9, 10 or 11 or something like right. that, but you couldn't and you were locked in and you stayed in until 17, you would have made phenomenal money. And I think in the depth, right, the fact that we couldn't sell, we weren't allowed to sell, you know, we were, we would, you know, trigger this massive um, capital. Uh, I mean, we can't as a fund manager anyway, because it would um, violate compliance. But when you hold long enough, what you can be sure about is that replacement cost is going to go up, that rents are going to go up, that the property will be worth more in 10 years than it is today. I don't know if that's true in the next year, two years, three right. years, right? And so you have to have a long-term outlook when you're investing in this whole short-term, hey, I want to be in for three years. I want to sell. I want to pay taxes. I want to do this. That's not how you're going to get wealthy. Too many people chase IRR, but you can't eat IRR. You can eat multiple. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, the other thing I would think, and I, I'm just thinking out loud because um, I've been in the loan. I also have a loan trading business and, and I've been in that space since like 2002. Um, single family, multifamily and commercial real estate loans. And in the last recession where I saw people get hurt is maturity risk. You know, so you, like you said, 10, over 10 years, you're going to be fine. But if, if all of a sudden you go into a recession and your loan comes due, in a terrible economy, 
Cap rates are up, cash flow is down. You know, all of a sudden your valuation is negatively impacted. <laughs> the, the lender tells you they're not going to refi the loan unless you bring additional capital and, you know, you can't raise capital in that type of market. Right. Um, so with an opportunity zone deal, I would think that it makes the financing decision easier. That, hey, look, we're going to get 10-year fixed rate loan. I don't, is that the case or no? That we do longer term. So you, you certainly can't get that on the construction side. But when we think about risk management, and that's something we're very good at, is um, thinking ahead and, and stress testing deals. Well, the first thing we do, which I think is really important, is we're putting in 35% of equity into these deals, right? On the ground up construction side on a cost basis. So, you know, and if you believe, right, you know, the pro forma, we're building to anywhere between a 30 and 40% margin. So when you think about the amount of equity that we have in from day one, um, you know, round numbers, I'll, I'll do hundred million because it's easier for me to do the math. We're putting in $35 million. And if we do our job, we you are say then, we, we, you're saying the company. The, the company, yeah, all or, the investors or, or combined. Or, so okay. Origin, right. So if we do our job and it's $100 million of cost and we're building to a 35% margin, that means when we're done, the property is going to be worth $135 million, right? Well, our debt is only $65 million. So the loan to value once we're finished is incredibly low. And, and generally what we do is we will then resize the loan at 65% of value. And having a, a, a lot of equity in the property is the first way that you mitigate downside risk. And to your point, fixed rate debt as well, right? With longer term maturities, not, you know, and, and having things staggered. So when you have a, you know, when you know you can't sell an asset for 10 years, there's no reason to put floating rate, you know, debt on it for three years at a time, right? There could be a certain portion of the portfolio that we do float, right? Because historically fixed rate debt has been far more expensive than floating rate debt. And you can go through sure. history and look at this, right? So, you know, there's reasons to do this, but generally the portfolio has fixed assets and it'll have fixed debt. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's, like you said, there's a lot, lots of reasons. If you're, if you're doing a three-year turn or four-year turn or five-year turn, that, look, you could, people that put long-term debt on two years ago, they could sell the property for a pretty penny right now, but they have to pay a huge prepayment penalty. So they're stuck, you know, they, well, they can't. listen. They, yeah, we're dealing with a lot of that right now, you know, where some of our defeasance on our properties, and that's what we would have to pay the lender is, you know, three, four, five million dollars. Now, we've also bought properties because they have this this long term debt on them and then people change their mind. And, you know, to us, it's all about the basis. Loans can be refinanced, but you, you can only buy a property you know, one time at the right basis. So we have some properties that, um, you know, we, we bought at really a great price because debt, what happens when you have above market debt, it, it actually detracts from the value of the property, right? So then it becomes lower. So it doesn't give you the optionality and flexibility, but QOZ, you know, candidly, we don't need that because we're bound by the law and we can't change our mind in three or four years and sell a property because it would violate the, um, the covenants of the law. So if I'm hearing you right, that the, the home run is to go in the opportunity zone. Is, it, is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, I never, I, I hate the word home, home run, run because I don't yeah, think right. about investing as um, home runs. I, I think about it as singles and doubles and maybe you hit a home run within the portfolio every now and then, you know? So for us, we're, we're trying to double our money at the property level every five years you know, and if we're wrong, we want to be at a, a one six, right? And if we're right, we want to be at a three or four X, you know, over that time period. And so, you know, it's just about being consistent, but certainly I would say the smarter investment move, if you, if you like real estate, you don't mind being ground up development, you have a longer term outlook, QZ is definitely the way to go. And keep in mind, Darren, that you know, after about three or four years of QZ, what you're doing is you're building a class A portfolio that will ultimately cash flow as well. So you get the benefits of the depreciation, you get the benefits of the tax-free refinancing, the cash flow, everything in that. And it's very much like our Growth Fund 4 that's coming out in January, except Growth Fund 4 doesn't have the QOZ benefits, right? So is the return profile similar? 
between the growth and yes, the opportunity zone? It, it's similar. Well, it, it's different because if you think about the growth fund, the growth fund that's coming out is going to be very short and it's going to be over a five-year period and possibly even shorter because in that particular fund, um, depending on how quickly we can raise the capital, we, um, we will have a two-year investment period and I think we'll be done a lot faster than that based on our pipeline and then a two-year um, stabilization period. So, you know, it, it was important to us as we were concepting this fund, right? Like, like there's a couple things that are bad about funds and I've been in these, so I know. One is the fund tail. And you can have these funds that are seven-year funds and then they have a plus one, plus one, plus one, plus one. Well, well, I have funds that I got into in 07 that are still using this plus one. And you're like, this is a pain in the butt. So, you know, you, you end up with these tails, right? The greatest thing about this is that this is going to be NAV based, right, on appraisal. And if somebody wants to punch out in year five, they're getting out 100%. They're not going to have these fun tails where we sell all these individual properties. But what we do as a manager is, is we just make sure that six months prior to the fund's expiration, we understand how many people want to redeem. And then we will sell enough properties to redeem them and maybe a little bit more to have a, a little bit of a cash cushion. But that's how we would manage it. And so if we have 12 properties in there and we have to sell three to, um, to redeem these commitments, we will. But really that five years is what... You know, you start to see the multiple build and you also see the IRR start to maximize in that. Right. And, and then over time, as you hold longer, you're going to be maximizing the multiple, but sacrificing IRR because those move in different directions. Gotcha. So all of these funds are geared towards accredited investors. Is that correct? Accredited. And the minimums are anywhere between 50 and $100,000. Okay. Except for the multifamily credit fund, which I said is only for qualified purchasers, those who have $5 million of investable assets or more. So the, the, what about the um, opportunity zone? Is the minimum 50 or 100 on that one? 50, yeah. 50? And that's for accredited, yep. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, well, we will have to talk offline on, the, on that one because I am not invested in, I'm invested in a lot of multifamily deals, but no opportunity zone deals. Um, so... We will talk about that. So help me understand one of the things that's a little confusing uh, with a fund structure is, okay, you're buying multiple assets. And if you're an investor or say I'm the investor and I'm going to invest in the growth fund and you're going to buy 10 different assets. Well, if I invest my money right when you open the fund, that is more risky because you haven't, you don't have any cash flow yet. And then somebody else invests after two deals are, you know, purchased and maybe, may, I think yours are, are ground up development, but let's just assume that mm -hmm. somebody, somebody buys into it after there is positive cash flow. Well, they have less risk. Are they coming in at a different price point than me if I got in originally? Yeah, great question. So I, I should caveat that there's some nuances about these funds. So the income plus fund is actually an open ended fund where you do invest all of your money on day one and you are diversified across a pool of assets. Growth fund four that we're coming out is a called capital fund. So everybody commits capital in a called capital fund, but we don't call your capital until we actually find a deal. And if you think about it very simply, right, if we have 100 investors in that fund and everybody contributes a million dollars, everybody will, will be a pro rata owner of 1% of the fund. And so if we find a deal for $10 million, we call $100,000 from everybody, right? And so everybody has an interest in that fund. But you are right in thinking about it because in closed-end funds, you have multiple closings. Um, you might have one every three months. So what happens in those later closings is that the later investors have to um, really pay earlier investors a preferred return. They also have to true up their um, management fees uh, and other things. So it's as if everybody came in on day one. Some people like to be in on that first day because they like to. Um, you know, start earning their prep and putting money out. And some people, candidly, they like to wait. They're like, look, I want to see how the portfolio is shaping up. I want to get, you know, kind of a look. I want to see the first three or four deals. And I'm okay with paying, you know, those few percentage points back to the earlier investors 
to get that look. So it, it's, it all depends, you know, and um, in, in a fund like this, I think we'll be out to market for about six months. So there's not going to be a huge difference in terms of the preferred return and the management fees that are going to have to be um, trued up from uh, the investors who come in at the end or the beginning. All right. So let me ask a follow on question with that. So, I mean, you, you, your example was a hundred investors at a million a pop and first deal, maybe you get a pro rata call of a hundred, hundred grand each. What if somebody just wanted to invest a hundred grand and they didn't want to invest a, a million. So then are they getting, they just have a $10,000 call. Is that how it That's works? That's right. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Their pro rata ownership would be much lower. It'd be 0.1% okay. versus 1%. Yeah. Gosh, yeah. Gosh, so gosh. investors can come in. I mean, I, we have investors who come in at the minimum, yeah. you know, for these funds at $50,000 and we have investors who come in at 10, $15 million for these funds. So right. um, it just depends. Obviously you're, you're, you know, you're going to be more exposed to the individual deals the, the right. more you come in to these deals. So, uh, you know, right. if you do Another invest a million dollars, go ahead. Another question on the, on the call feature. Is there a penalty or if you go out for the call and somebody says, you know what, I changed my mind or I, I don't have the money or I lost money and, you know, I was going to sell stock and I lost money and I can't do it now. Do they have any kind of financial downside for that early commitment? They, they do. Yeah, okay. absolutely, Darren, because, you know, as a fund manager, we need to make sure that when people make commitments to us, that we're right. able to run the fund, that we have the money, we have the strategy. People aren't trying to time things happen. You know, that's our job out there. Sure. Um, but candidly, like if somebody commits and we haven't called capital, there's no teeth in the deal. But if we've already called 50 percent of somebody's capital and they can no longer fund, then there would be penalties. Now, I'll say like, you know, when we think about the world and the way we operate, there's what's in the PPM and then there's life, right? And so we, everybody has a different story. And if something happens to somebody, you know, in the past, this has happened to us, we bought them out, right? We've allowed somebody, because there's always people who want to get in later, take over those positions, do something. So it's an investor by investor choice, you know? Um, but if, you know, like, like there's always exceptions to the rule. Yeah. So the, the agreement is that, Hey, they've got a penalty and then, you know, life is life and you may, you know, waive that, um, depending yeah, on circumstances. Exactly. Um, so, Hey, talk about, um, I don't think we've talked about it yet. It, you guys have done a lot of transactions. What's been the performance on the, on the, on the portfolio? Like what are the returns typically? So on realized deals, uh, that's a good question. I know those are constantly moving. I want to say from an IRR standpoint, and this is underneath the fund because I can go back. Our, our fund realized returns, if I go back to fund one, um, that was a 2.1 multiple of 23% IRR. Fund two was around a 2.0 multiple and a 21% um, IRR. Fund three, we're actually selling that right now. That was a 2016-17 vintage. That multiple will shape up to be about a 1.6 to 1.7 and right around a 12 to 13% IRR in that particular fund. Um, and then in the, um, in the Income Plus fund, we've had a great year. That's actually a 17. Now, granted, Income Plus is supposed to be, you know, sort of a 9 to 11% um, annualized return. And over the last 12 months, that fund has been 17% uh, um, IRR over that fund. And then the, um, the QOZ, it's too early in that fund. Like those deals, we have two deals, um, that are, um, that are up and going right now. And then the rest are in construction and then growth fund four is, um, coming down the pipeline growth fund four, we're targeting 14 to 16% net IRR and then a one six to one seven, uh, multiple on that fund. And, you know, candidly, like when you look at the world, um, we always tell people like, you know, like, don't expect the same returns you've gotten for the last five to seven years. We believe that there's still good returns to be had, but all of our returns, and I, I should say this, you know, on our, our realized deals, like we've generated over a two multiple, um, we've generated, you know, high 20s returns on the individual deals, but never in our history have we ever gone out to market and said, hey, we want to generate a three multiple on a deal or a four multiple on a deal. Like everything is very consistent. And that's also what I find interesting about this market too, because 
what things look like on Excel and even in your gut and you look at them and you're, you're handicapping these deals and you're underwriting them and you're sort of massaging a hundred different variables, but you might look at a deal and there's plenty out there. Like we've had deals, our worst performing deal was a, a 105 multiple, right? Um, and I should also say we've never lost um, money on any deal in a fund. So that was one of our deals, but we underwrote that to a two X return, right? Well, life happens. It didn't happen. Right. And, you know, on the other hand, right, same vintage, very similar process. We underwrote another deal in the West Loop of Chicago that ended up, you know, like 2x return on paper. It ended up being a 4x, right? So, you know, Excel, like, like this is the advantage of being in funds, being spread across multiple deals. Um, we don't even know, you know, being close to the business. Um, but, you know, you want your, when you miss and you want to, and you're wrong, you want to be wrong to the right side, right? Not to the sure. downside, but to the upside. And Absolutely. that's why we've always underwritten conservatively looking at these um, these opportunities. So I don't know, that's a long, you know, kind of winded way of, of answering your question about track record. Uh, absolutely. Uh, so, Hey, yeah. talk about, so when you started the company, it was you and your partner and you were already wealthy. I mean, you already made a lot of money in the commodity space. How has the real estate space been in terms of wealth generation compared to what you earned in the commodity space? Uh, it's, it's apples to oranges, you know, and, and I'll say this, that th this next phase of my life was not about, you know, creating wealth. That's what the first phase of my life was about. This is really about keeping what I've built, right. And continuing to grow it and continuing, you know, to have passive income. And what, what David and I have built is, um, you know, really proud of origin investments, but that's, you know, most people, like when you think about real estate in a portfolio, sure, you can get wealthy. And, you know, a lot of sponsors do using high leverage, leveraging their money, you know, other people's money, et cetera. But that's not really what this was about for us. So I think real estate is a, is one of the best tools that you could possibly use, you know, in lieu of stocks and bonds, um, to grow your wealth, to generate passive income, cash flow, et cetera. You know, and Darren, what I find interesting is we've studied a lot, you know, not only the private real estate, but also the public real estate side. And real estate has outperformed stocks over the last 20, 30, 40 years, and certainly has outperformed bonds as well. And the interesting thing about it is, is it's a hybrid between bonds and equities because you have fixed leases that make it act more like bonds and give it stability. But then you have um, replacement costs that continues to um, increase. You have lease escalations that helps increase as well. And so, you know, when you think about efficient markets, really your equities should be the ones that are outperforming because of the risk you're taking in the common. And then you've got this, the real estate asset that should end up somewhere between stocks and bonds, but it hasn't. It's actually outperformed. And I know, you know, I've read your website and it's been a huge um, wealth builder for so many families. And I, I just think that, you know, as we were studying this, too many people are under allocated to real estate in their portfolios and, and, and even, you know, wealth managers, sometimes when you talk about public REITs, they see those as alternatives. But when you start to look at the data and the information and how they have performed relative to the rest of the public equities, it's not even close. Like, yeah. really, it should be about, you know, you should have a portfolio of real estate with 5% being in other stocks, and you would have outperformed everything on a risk-adjusted and an absolute basis over the last 20, 30, 40 years. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Um, yeah, and there's, but there's a lot of people that don't know how to do it and haven't developed a relationship with somebody like Origin Investments or another syndicator. And so, you know, and they don't want to spend the time to go out and, and do it. So, you know, themselves, it's a shame because, you know, stocks just don't have the tax benefits and don't have the leverage that you have in real estate. And, you know, you, you, talk, you also talked about, you know, the leases and my son's a junior at college at A&M and I was at a parents weekend and met a, met a gentleman that, you know, he's done very, very well in the industrial space and the company he works for and industrial pro properties have been on fire, right? I mean, they, they've done very, very, very well, but he, even he was like, you're in a better spot because, you know, we, we have locked in, you know, 
five years, you know, 10 years worth of, of rent bumps. But, you know, with multifamily, it, they're typically annual leases. So yeah. And a lot of turnover. Yeah. If all of a sudden there is rampant inflation, you know, you can adjust the lease, you know, accordingly or based on supply and demand, whatever. But, you know, with those, um, those, those other properties, they're not able to because the, the rent bumps are, are locked into the contract. Yeah, agreed. I, I think office is in real trouble for, for that reason, but also just because of, you know, what's going on in the, um, the demographic changes, the work at home environment. So right now, now, you know, I always am concerned though, because when, you know, I think office is the new retail in certain, you know, areas, um, retail has just been getting pummeled for the last 20 years. It's just continues to be on the ropes. Um, and you know, all the money though is flowing into multifamily and industrial right now. And then there's a lot and some self storage and things like that, but those are really the areas where the fundamentals favor those for the next kind of four or five, 10 years. So we're, we're, you know, we're keeping an eye out, you know, because you have to be careful when all the money flows into <laughs> right. one sector as well. Right. So it's kind of like, Hey, we're here first, you know, and, and, but candidly, you know, when we see what's going on on the for sale side, the existing product, and, and it's trading so far above replacement costs, guess what? It's a great time to sell, right? And if they're right, then, then our build strategy is only going to be better. But one of the reasons, oh, I just had a little something happen there. No worries. Um, but one of the reasons, you know, if, if they are right, then, you know, we're going to do fine. So you, you have to just manage your risk at every point in the cycle, but no tree grows to the sky. Um, and, you know, that's, that's the power of diversification and being in good quality real estate as well. Absolutely. So you guys have shifted from, you know, bought, you know, buy, fix and sell to buy, fix and, and hold. And you're focused more on new development versus buying existing properties. Um, I've seen a lot of syndicators that have kind of in the last year, year and a half, two years that have been focused on trading up. And some of them are just moving from like C, C class assets to B plus and A assets. Some are getting into new development. Um, on the new development side, how do you manage inflation of raw materials to build? So are you, you know, do you adjust rents accordingly? You know, if, if all of a sudden, you know, like last year, lumber costs went crazy. It's come back down. But, um, you know, if you have a run in commodities prices where, you know, it wasn't in your budget, you know, are you readjusting the, the leases when you, when you come up to lease up? Well, you have revenues and expenses, right, that you have to factor in. And so in a development pro forma, you're going to know what your costs are going in. And we generally um, get a guaranteed max um, contract, right, a GMP. And that contract, you're, you're starting on day one. You know what all the line items cost, right? And then the, um, the builder is locking those in with the subs, et cetera. So if you want to, now, interestingly enough, we had a deal where when lumber went to $1,600, um, the deal still worked, but we said, look, we're going to underwrite this $1,600, but we want to leave these line items out. And we left lumber out, but we're able to price it at that $1,600, $1,700. Now, we're not trying to trade, but you look at it, and you're like, this can't sustain, right? Or else the world is stopping because you just can't make, you know, new housing um, work at $1,600 per board foot of lumber. And what happened is then lumber came all the way back down to $450, $500. We saved millions of dollars on the project for doing that. So, you know, those are like, but today where lumber is, I think it's, you know, $700. We're not going to do that. Right. Cause the risk reward is not the same. It could go back up to $1,600. Right. But what are we going to save a couple hundred dollars if it goes back down? But those are some of the ways we get, you know, kind of creative. Um, but, and everything, everybody's really concerned about costs and rightfully so. And what I tell people is that, look, the cost you'll pay today to build multifamily is more expensive than the cost a year ago. That's true. And the cost a year ago, guess what, was more expensive than the cost the year before. And I could keep going with that in a year. And, and that's just the fact in multifamily and generally real estate is that every year you go out, you're going to have inflation in materials. Do you have, you know, these recessionary periods where people are slow and it comes down and you might save 10% and it resets? 
Sure, right? The offset to that though, is you have to look at the revenue as well. And when you have revenue is the equalizer because that's the multiplier effect. Because when you look at cap rates, right? A four cap rate is the same as saying you have a 25 multiplier on your earnings, right? So there's a lot of leverage on that side. So you don't need much, right? When you have a 20% increase in costs, you only need a corresponding $75 per month increase in um, rental rates, you know, per month in some of these properties, right? When you don't quote me, it's not exact, but it's pretty close. And when we do the math, um, you know, you look at it and and I'll tell you, when you have places like Phoenix that are growing, you know, 17% year over year, right? From the depth and those rents are growing at 250, $300, Well, the way the calculus works out is that your development margins, even though you've had costs that have run up, they're actually getting bigger than they were in 2018 and 2019 because your revenues are just soaring far ahead of costs. So hopefully I made sense there, but that's kind of, you know, there's there's two sides of that equation and everybody is focused on costs, but you can go back into the history of real estate and every year you're going to have higher costs. I think what really exacerbates this is just the magnitude of those costs in the last year. But keep in mind that we're coming off a very low low. And I, I think what we have to really um, concern ourselves now is these supply logistics. And even though we're entering into these GMPs, you know, can people get the cabinets, the studs, the drywall, everything else, you know, on time into the into the property so we can lease it on time as well? Absolutely. Uh, so what's, you guys have done so much. What's the next big stretch goal for you? Uh, stretch goal. That, that's a good question. You know, we think about, uh, we're actually having a meeting with our, um, our team leaders in about a week from now where they're going to, you know, present kind of the plan uh, for their individual divisions. They all do a SWOT analysis on origin. So, you know, when we think about, you know, we want to continue to grow and deliver the same um, quality that we have for the last 10 years. Um, And and that's hard to do, especially as you scale. You know, when you go from managing 300 or $400 million of equity, and then you go to a billion, and then you go to $2 billion, how do you build the engine to be able to to deliver the same quality? And I mean, you know, in the investor relations department, um, that's still that high touch, right? The returns on the ground, everything. So we're expanding. But one thing David and I have always done well is we've grown at a measured pace and we're not afraid to say no, to turn capital down, to turn deals down, to do things, you know, that make sense in the long run. Because I think one of the roles of a CEO is that you, you not only have to understand like where you're going in the next 12 to 18 months, but really be looking out at the horizon five years out. And so, you know, our, our stretch goal you know, candidly, like when we look at, I mean, we're going to be at, at 10,000 units, um, you know, probably this time next year, that that's not even a stretch goal. Uh, we have about 2000 investment partners uh, today who we, we proudly serve. And that was a stretch goal. You know, when we look back five years ago and we had a hundred investment partners and we've grown the business from, you know, I would say that goes back about six years ago um, from a hundred investors to 2000, that's been huge. So, you know, we'd love to get up to 10,000 investors at some point in time, um, you know, in the future. But it's, you know, Darren, it's it's doing more of the same and making sure that we're delivering the same quality to the market. Fantastic. Um, what do you like to do outside of work? Good question. Um, well, today it's pretty miserable, so I'm not doing anything um, today. <laughs> you know, I think if you're uh, if you're I'm in Chicago right now and it's been pouring. But so um, golf. I have three boys. Uh, okay. Yeah, well, I do. I, I golf. Yeah, I golf. I have three boys. I've been married for 21 years. My boys are 19, 17, and 14, uh, soon to be 15 in, a, in another couple weeks. So they keep me busy, very busy. Um, I love to snowboard. Um, big snowboarder. Oh, I yeah. tend to go where, out, where, you where know, do you go? Um, out west. God, yeah. everywhere. I go to, um, you know, uh, y- you name it. I've been there. But Whitefish is kind of a new place for us to be going. That's great. That's kind of the the untapped resort in northwest Montana. I go to Big Sky, Telluride, um, awesome. Breckenridge, Vale, Aspen, uh, all over. You know, if there's, you know, Tahoe I'm going to this year again, um, you know, and I'm happy wherever there's snow and good friends. Well, also three boys, 19, 17, 14, that, that I'm guessing that they're probably snowboarders too then if you, if dad is. And 
That's kind of no, cool. No, no, they're not. not. Uh, no, they're not. It's it's, it's kind are of. They ski- uh, are they no, skiers? They or they don't? Ski- they- yeah. Really? We're the backwards family. My wife and I snowboard and the boys ski. And it's kind of funny because, you know, when I started snowboarding, I was a skier before snowboarder and I took it up in my early 20s. And that was sort of the time that snowboarding took off. But when you think about skiing back then, it wasn't as fun. And so all the kids who wanted to get in the snowboard park and, you know, go to the half pipe, they all got on the, uh, the snowboard. And then what happened was skis took a page out of the snowboard book and they started shaping them and making them more fun. And all of a sudden, you know, the skiers were in the park, they were in the half pipe, they were doing this. And there was really no reason for kids to transition. So I think you're actually seeing, you know, you saw mass adoption um, of snowboarding in sort of the 90s and, and you know, maybe going into the early 2000s. But that's fallen off quite a bit. So, no, we're, we're the best. That's, my wife that's and I funny. That's the opposite. Line. So yeah. I'm I'm a skier. My wife's a skier. And and uh, my kids are like, oh, they, they ski, but they're like, I want to I want to learn how to snowboard. And and it's, I always thought it was the younger generation that that liked to do it. Um but, no, and I'll tell you, Dan, what I like about it too is it's what I call active meditation. I was telling my wife about this. It's it's like my happy place. You know, when I when I have trouble sleeping or having anxiety, I just close my eyes and I think about that, you know, going down the mountain, endless powder below your feet and just riding and it's like surfing and just you're not thinking about anything at that moment in time. And I think, you know, whether you're skiing or whether you're snowboarding, I mean, it's all great, but you need those moments where you're just you're not looking at your phone. You're not around right. it. And you're just thinking about the 30, 50 feet in front of you and taking in the fresh air and loving it. And everybody needs to recharge. That's that's fantastic. Absolutely. Well, you, you've got a good one there. Um, hey, if somebody wants to reach out to you, what's the best way to get to know you guys more? Origininvestments.com. You can go right to our website. We make it super easy. You can connect with anybody in IR right there. Um, you can also email them at investor relations at origininvestments.com. I know it's a long one, Um, but all of our materials are downloadable. So we really leave it up to um, the investor if they want to have a conversation with us. So I highly recommend go to our website. You got to fill out some forms, but you can download our deck. You can read about us. You can learn whatever you want. Um, And then if you're interested in taking next steps, just reach out to um, somebody in IR and they'll, um, they'll be happy to answer any questions you have. Fantastic. Well, Michael, I appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, Listeners, I hope you enjoyed that one. These guys have a ton of experience and, um, and I'm just glad we got a chance to to hang out and talk and, and I'm going to stop recording and then I'm going to hit you up on the opportunity zone fund a little bit more. So hope you guys enjoyed that one until next week. Signing off. Thank you for listening to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show at darrenbatchelder.com. If you liked the episode, please provide us with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. If you already provided us with a five-star review, then thank you. And please share the show with a friend. 